I think it's fair to say, and this is one of the critiques that we get, that we haven't really done anything yet. And I think that's, that's totally fair to say. It's about to change very quickly. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. Today, we're going to talk with Bart Barber about the state of the Southern Baptist Convention. After that, we'll have another edition of our segment called On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for a segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, we're going to talk about sports. But first, we want to invite you to our upcoming conference called Exploring per- Personhood, Exploring Personhood, Focusing on Human Formation. So you may know, you've, you've probably heard us talk about that the Center for Faith and Culture was the recipient of a John Templeton Foundation grant that focuses on what we call theological anthropology or the doctrine of the human being. Last year, we spent a lot of time talking about defining the human being. This year at our conference, we'll talk about forming the human being. And so the various speakers that will be coming uh, will talk about anything from trauma, how that affects, how that affects us in formation, uh, to suffering, to our habits, to uh, spiritual formation and the types of disciplines that are important for this. If you're able to come, we'd love to have you. It'll be February 2nd and 3rd here at Southeastern Seminary. You can go to the show notes for how to register. And now let's get to our segment called Headlines. Playoffs are underway in the National Football League, but overshadowing all of the playoff drama has been the health of an individual player named Damar Hamlin. A few weeks ago, Hamlin collapsed on the field for the Buffalo Bills in a uh, significant health crisis. His situation has sparked renewed conversations about the dignity of athletes. Dr. Quinn, so often, you know, you watch sports, I watch sports, so often we view the athletes that are playing as cogs in a machine or merely as people who exist for our entertainment. But what does Hamlin's health situation remind us about the dignity of athletes in general? Yeah, it's a great question, Nathaniel, and I'm glad we're able to pause and talk about this. It has been a couple of weeks now since DeMar collapsed on Monday Night Football. I mean, everything about it was terrifying. We were, My family and I were watching this as it happened in real time. And, of course, uh, you know, when he, he has this tackle, he makes the tackle, he stands up, adjusts his helmet, everything looks fine, and then it's almost like someone pulled his cord and he just fell. Um, we learned later that it's cardiac arrest. They actually administered CPR there on the field. It was quite serious. Of course, the players are crying. All that goes on with that, what kind of reflections, what do we learn from that? Uh, three things come to mind for me. Number one, that players are people, not commodities. And we heard uh, ESPN commentators and, and all types of other sports commentators say this. They've said the same about Tua Tungabaloa, the quarterback for the, uh, for the Miami Dolphins, uh, former Alabama quarterback as well, that he has had – multiple uh, concussions this year. Some of them just really ugly, the way that he res- his body responded on the field. And there's a lot of pressure on the Dolphins, a lot of pressure on Tua about how are they caring for him. The same with DeMar and the way that they responded here. I think it's, it's that much more of a reminder that these athletes are paid tons of money. Uh, these these uh, sports teams generate tons of revenue for the communities, for the, the teams, for the players, all of that. 
Um, and so it's, it'd be, it's really easy for us to lose sight of the fact that these are actual human beings. And we need to be really mindful of that, that these are players, they're real people, they're not mere commodities. Secondly, it was fun to see and encouraging to see faith in action uh, when DeMar fell, that on, uh, you know, on network television, multiple people, multiple noteworthy personalities leading in prayer, uh, and even some other noteworthy commentators saying, I don't have any words for this other than we need to pray for him, and really invoking in very positive ways the name of the Lord uh, to promote this. And I think that's really insightful for us, that while so often— Increasingly so. Athletes and even sports commentators may feel the pressure to kind of mute their faith in the public eye. Uh, This was an opportunity where there was no muting of the faith. It was very much uh, roaring forth in faith in action here. And then third is, this is an interesting point, not only for sports, but for us in general, but I think it really, it shows forth here. You know, you saw the Bills and the Bengals together praying for DeMar, hugging each other, encouraging each other, even though this is a sport that thrives on uh, the controversy of the opposition, one team against another. Um, actually, these, these guys are brothers. And there's nothing that forges fellowship like suffering. There's nothing that forges fellowship like struggle. This is true in our churches. It's true in our families and our friendships. But we saw that on the field in a beautiful display. So when these two teams played again just this past weekend, it was quite the fellowship. It wasn't just a game at that point. It wasn't just an opposing rivalry, um, but it was, it was almost a fellowship time. We at the Center for Faith and Culture are part of Southeastern Seminary, which is a seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention. And today we're delighted to have with us the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Bart Barber. Bart has served as pastor of First Baptist Church Farmersville since 1999. He's married to Tracy. Together they have two children. And Bart holds a Ph.D. in church history from our sister seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Bart, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a great privilege. Thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about your story. How, how did you come to Christ? When did you sense a call to ministry? Just give us the background of who Bart is. Sure. So I was thinking just the other day, my first introduction to the great old hymns of the faith was hearing just my mother's uh, alto voice singing them uh, to the accompaniment of the beat of her heart while I was in the womb. I was a part of a very devout family. In fact, I'll tell you, my mom is soon to see Jesus, and we were going through her things, and we found uh, just not days ago uh, a letter that she wrote to my dad before they got married talking about her hopes for their family, and uh, preeminent in that was that they would follow Christ, Yeah, and um, so she really followed through with that, and he also. So I was young. I, I was also at a, a church that didn't have any kind of pull-out programs for children. Mom worked hard to educate me in a preschool kind of way, and I was in big church and hearing the gospel preached a lot and understood it pretty early. And so I came to faith in Christ when I was almost six, just days away from being six years old. And then, uh, you know, God called me to ministry when I was 11. Of course, didn't rushed straight off into ministry. I had uh, pastors and parents who were wiser than that and uh, were sort of waiting to see what would happen. But I preached my first sermon when I was 15. Wow. And uh, was pastor of a church when I was 17 uh, before I graduated and went off to school. By God's providence, 
That happened in the 80s. Uh, when they didn't record everything on Earth, you did and put it in the internet. So, so those uh, those early sermons are mercifully uh, oh, lost to history. I wish mine were. <laughs> I went back and listened to one of my early sermons, and I was like, "What in the world was I doing?" Yeah. Oh so. yeah, yeah. So I pray for your generation uh, for that perpetual humility. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, then you know, God just opened a pathway for me uh, to receive. Thanks to Southern Baptists, uh, preparation for serving as a pastor at Baylor University and then two degrees at Southwestern Seminary and married a great wife. And we've been active in local church ministry since uh, the very beginning. So First Baptist Church Farmersville, from what I understand, is not a megachurch by any stretch of the imagination. It seems like a no normal one has ever church. accused no us of that. Never accused you of that. How does a pastor of a normal-sized SBC church become president of the SBC? Well, I'm discovering uh, day by day uh, how to complete it, how it happened. I think that there are a couple of things that are that are substantial factors in that. One, I think uh, it's fair to say that the internet and the rise of social media have enabled people who would not have had the resources to be known by anyone to be known by people now yeah, yeah. Uh, where that where that's made possible by other people playing into social media and paying attention by no means do i think that the entirety of the southern baptist convention uh, is really following twitter i think i think we get evidence regularly that that's a subset yeah. uh, of the sbc but even with that being the case, enough people are paying attention to social media that it enables people who don't necessarily have a TV ministry or who aren't necessarily folks who preach at state conventions regularly or who find themselves on a speaking circuit at major events still have the opportunity to be someone well-known uh, throughout the convention. My engagement in social media, my work on my PhD, uh, put me in positions where um, Southern Baptists began to entrust me with smaller responsibilities. I served on the Committee on Committees. I wound up on the Board of Trustees for our state convention and also for uh, the Southern Baptist Convention Seminary in Fort Worth, uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, I think events that uh, that required me to do work <laughs> in those roles also um, you know put me in a position where people would know me I, I think the Southern Baptist Convention is full of people who could provide good leadership for Southern Baptists it's just a lot of them we don't know who they are yeah. now some of our listeners may not know exactly what the president of the Southern Baptist Convention does so imagine you're you're giving the elevator speech someone says what do you do as president of the SBC how would you answer that question the constitutional role for the president of the SBC is to run the meeting and appoint some committees and serve on a few boards. And uh, I'm trying to fulfill those responsibilities over the course of this year. But then there are also what we might call the informal or non-constitutional requirements for the presidency. And some of those involve trying to help other people recognize that they're a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. So I've written things for state conventions and, and recorded things for local associations. And that has uh, spanned the gamut from Hawaii Pacific all the way to Puerto Rico. And I do things like that 
just because I know what it is being a little more obscure to be thankful that Southern Baptists bothered to know who I was. Hmm. And I think in the same way, a Baptist convention in New Jersey or in Montana or American Samoa or in Puerto Rico enjoy knowing and are encouraged by knowing that the president of the SBC knows who they are. Hmm. And so that's that's an important thing that I've tried to do. And and then, you know, there have been some other surprises along the way, too. But uh, but mostly it's that sort of thing. Early in our history, we didn't bother to elect a president for an annual meeting until the annual meeting started. We would we would gather. We the first thing that we would do is elect that year's president, not the next year's president. But the convention's grown and the responsibilities have grown to the point that, you know, now we elect someone a year in advance to try to cover some of those other responsibilities over the course of the year. Not long after becoming SBC president, you made a joke on Twitter, which seems to be your personality. You're, you're, you're not afraid to be lighthearted, and I really appreciate that. Someone took offense for whatever reason, and you had, you had a quote, and I love this quote. You said, I will not spend a year bereft of a merry heart. What did you mean by that? Well, the person who objected... Um, it wasn't that they just thought I didn't have a good sense of humor, which is often true. My, <laughs> my jokes may not be appreciated by everyone. And, uh, and sometimes it's not the right time and place. Uh, earlier today, I was in a conference with an astrophysicist who was showing us amazing pictures of the galaxy and put up this beautiful picture of a nebula. And, and I texted a friend, but I had to restrain myself from saying out loud, <laughs> Uh, if Khan follows us in there, his shields will be ineffective, <laughs> uh, you know, which is from The Wrath of Khan, uh, Star yep, Trek movie. Yep. Um, but, I, you know, this person's objection, and and that would not be a very good joke. <laughs> and it would not have been the right time for it. Uh, this person's It may obje- have been the perfect time for it. Let's be <laughs> honest. There may have never <laughs> been a group possible. of people more interested <laughs> in uh, Star Trek and Wrath of Khan jokes than, than where you were in. But anyway, <laughs> That's never mind. true. A bunch of nerds yeah. in there. Yeah. but. Anyway, the the person's objection was to say, you know, we're in a moment when we need serious leadership for the Southern Baptist Convention with the things that we face. How dare you have joy when what you should have is sobriety and whatever else. You should make kind of a formal posture. I don't think that we need to go back to... Uh, you know, the the mid to late 1800s, whenever you took somebody's picture, they felt like they could not smile uh, because you needed to look like a serious person. And we look at that now and think, man, these people were, uh, these are not very good pictures. Um, God created us as human beings uh, to be able to experience seriousness and joy and sadness and uh, and laughter most funerals that I do, there there's laughter at some point mm. in the midst of that funeral. Uh, the Bible says that a merry heart's like good medicine, uh, and I think it is. And so, uh, you know, I responded to that person. I, I listed three or four of the things that I had done just that day or in the days leading up, very serious writing that I had done about substantial topics. And I just replied to say, man, i <laughs> Basically, what I was trying to say is it doesn't subtract from seriousness for us to add some sense of joy and humor uh, in the midst of life. I love your heart behind that. 
Uh, and you mentioned the, the reality that there are serious issues in the SBC, and we don't want to overlook those. For example, SBC has faced series of challenges in recent years, none bigger than the sexual abuse crisis. SBC has begun to take steps in recent years to address this problem. I'm not asking you to give us a two-hour synopsis, but how are we doing? How are we doing in, in enacting those reforms? I think it's fair to say, and this is one of the critiques that we get, that we haven't really done anything yet. And I think that's, that's totally fair to say. It's about to change very quickly, measured in, in days rather than weeks, effectively. And that's going to be good. We've needed to do the work necessary to accomplish effective change, not just throwing things at the wall and hoping something sticks, but instead trying to, to put together proven and studied and reasonable solutions. And the other thing is, it's I will not apologize for the Baptist way of decision-making that requires persuasion and consensus and coalition building. And so uh, we've been at work doing that as well. Of course, the, the Abuse Reform Implementation Task Force uh, and not me are the ones who are engaged in the day-to-day work on this. Uh, but they've been diligent, and they're about to start releasing actual actions, accomplishments in, in real life, and I'm thankful for that. The ball game's changed. I'm so thankful for what the Sexual Abuse Task Force did under President Ed Litton. I'm thankful for what J.D. Greer and Ed Litton did to, to make this process get started. When I came into office, what we had accomplished was an investigation. And all you have to do to accomplish an investigation is get 50% plus one of the messengers to vote in favor of that. But when we get to the implementation stage, and that's where we are, this is the Abuse Reform Implementation Task Force, our objective cannot be 50% plus one. We have to have the preponderance of Southern Baptist churches moving forward in implementation together. That's going to require more in the way of persuasion and coalition building. And here's the reason why. Sometimes I see people who are either saying, well, you should just put forward what the best stuff is, and whoever won't do it, kick those churches out of the convention. Uh, Or sometimes I see people saying, the Southern Baptist Convention needs to die, and, and we wish it would all go away. We're angry at the SBC for abuse, and we need the SBC to just, to just vanish. You know, I would just, I would just say, in my mind, here's why it's far better to persuade most of the churches in the SBC that what we're doing is not only good and righteous, but also wise and strategic for those churches. Uh, it's because every church that leaves the SBC, rather than participating in what we're going to try to do, Uh, in assisting churches, the children at that church are no safer than they were before because we could thump our chest and say, well, we kicked them out. We we showed them. Hmm. Uh, That church is still there. All the people who are attending that church are still attending that church. And if there are dangerous things going on at that church, real people are going to be affected by that. And so to the degree that instead of having a 51-49 vote, we can bring Southern Baptists onto the same page to implement common sense best practices to prevent abuse and to care for survivors of abuse in those churches, then we actually change the experience of of people in churches. And so 
we're serving survivors of abuse, but we're also trying to keep from growing that number. Yeah. And that's a really important priority for us. So what I hear from you is that I think for some people, they may see the decisions of recent Southern Baptist Convention meetings is like, look, we've done it. What I'm hearing from you is, no, we're just beginning, in a sense, to begin to place the implementations and the reforms needed. Sure. An investigation is not doing anything. An investigation is gathering the information to be able to do something. Yeah. And yeah. it heightens awareness, and that may, that may help. And, but because ultimately, the fact of the matter is, the National Southern Baptist Convention can do very little to change what's happening with regard to abuse. I think it's important to say that while there's little we can do, the little we can do can be very influential. Mm. And um, because we do stand in a position to be able to make a persuasive case to local churches, uh, they have to make their own decision to implement or not implement, but we can persuade. And every entity of the SBC their mission statement starts with the idea of assisting the churches to do something or other. And that's why what we can do as a national convention is assist churches to prevent abuse and to take care of those who have survived abuse. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your work and, and the, the committee's work on this, and I look forward to seeing what those implementations will be. Let me switch gears a little bit and um, just kind of give you some rapid-fire questions. Okay. And uh, I'm going to throw the question out there. You say the first thing that comes to mind, Okay. What's your biggest joy as serving as SBC president? I think the favorite thing that I've done is to uh, sometimes when I'm traveling from one place to another and I'm tired of being in the car, I'll randomly pull over where I see a Southern Baptist church and just walk in and find who's in the office and say, how can I pray for you and your church? How amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic. What's the biggest challenge? Uh, so I think the, the biggest challenge for me has been trying to figure out how to continue being someone on social media who's now president of the SBC, uh, knowing when to say something, when not to say something. Yeah, because your words carry a little more weight than they used to. And they affect a lot more people than yeah. me. Uh, yeah. They affect those things more, more profoundly. Just being a Southern Baptist pastor, anything I yeah. say online yeah. has the potential to do whatever, but I'm... There are thousands of missionaries <clears throat> around the world whose ministries I can enhance or mess up, mm, and mm, um, mm. and I'll answer to the Lord someday mm. for which one of those I did. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'm trying to be more careful. What's been uh, the biggest surprise about being SBC president? Oh, the biggest surprise may have been the first day when Jonathan Howe called me and said, hey, who's your worship director supposed to be? And I said, how, how long do I have to tell you? I knew it was going to be James Cheeseman, but I had not talked to him about it yet. He said, well, I need to know tonight. We vote on that tomorrow. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and I had to pull that together in a hurry. <clears throat> the most pleasant surprise, I'd heard people talk about this. And so I can't say that it was the biggest shock, but it was the most pleasant surprise. has just been the consistency with which I get a card mailed to me mm. from a <clears throat> Sunday school class, a small church in Indiana saying, we we prayed for you this Sunday. Mm, mm. Uh, that's a beautiful thing. What gives you hope about the SBC and its future moving forward? What gives you pause? Two sides of the same question. You can, you can do the negative first. What gives you pause? What gives you hope? The currents of our, of our society right now are moving us further away from one another as people. Uh, I don't just mean 
strong rhetoric or, or I mean, the loneliness and isolation of people, I think gives rise to a lot of that. Mm-hmm. We have better communication technology than ever in the history of mankind and worse communication. And so the pandemic has affected that profoundly. Um, a lot of the technological things that have resulted in like people who don't attend church in person, but who just participate in the worship service of a church online, distance learning, exclusively distance learning for seminary, uh, and and doing that in a context where you're not like in a cohort of people in your church or anything like that, but where it's just you uh, in your little home office at your computer attending an online course and, and, and trying to get a seminary degree, and really going to seminary together with people studying with people, interacting with people through a local association and that sort of thing. That's been the glue that's held us together where when you know somebody and disagree with them, you treat them differently than when somebody is just an impersonal force avatar on the computer that you disagree with. And uh, But those contacts are going away, and I'm worried about what that means for how we'll be able to work together in the future. Mm. But I don't think we're in the grips of that yet, and I have hope because I truly believe that the Holy Spirit um, moves among Southern Baptists when we gather and try to make good decisions. And I think we've seen evidence of that in the way that things work when we face controversial topics. Uh, I predict that five years from now, Southern Baptists will be fighting, uh, but I don't think we'll be fighting about the same things we're fighting about this year because the Lord leads us to resolve differences and move forward. Uh, this season, we're focusing on spiritual formation. In all of our podcasts, blog, content, spiritual formation, human formation, how does cooperating together, which is really the heart of what being a Southern Baptist is, that we're cooperating together uh, in essence for missions, how does that form us as believers? God's plan for spiritual formation is that people would interact with people. Uh, you see that in an Old Testament perspective where it says, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. See it in a New Testament perspective when it talks about how even with our singing, that we're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs through the experience of worship. So God's plan for spiritual formation was to use people to form other people. The Southern Baptist Convention has been a means for me personally to uh, get to come into contact with believers uh, whom I would never have found on my own. And uh, God also forms us spiritually through experiences. And uh, one of the most deeply formative things for me uh, has been participation in mission trips and work with our missionaries overseas. And Southern Baptist Convention has played an enormous role in making those opportunities available, Mm. uh, even to a church from Farmersville, Texas. (laughs) And so... I'm profoundly thankful for uh, the access to seminary education, uh, the access to cooperative work with other Southern Baptist believers, and the access to missions opportunities uh, have shaped who I am as a believer. And I think uh, all of those things are tied to and made possible by our cooperative work with one another. Awesome. Well, Bart, thank you so, so much for being with us today and sharing about this. And and we're so grateful for your willingness to serve and, uh, you know, uh, your church is a little bigger than my church that I that I pastor, but uh, I know how hard it is to do all the things that you need to do. And 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 you're, you've added this giant uh, whale of a responsibility to your plate. 
we appreciate your willingness to serve, and, and we're going to pray for you as you serve in that way. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast I'm today. counting on those prayers. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. It's great to spend some time with you today. And now it's time for listener favorite On My Bookshelf. This is that part of our show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. And today we have with us Dr. Christy Thornton. Dr. Thornton, what's on your bookshelf? Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. Now, Fred Sanders is a first-rate evangelical theologian doing really high-class work on the Trinity. But in his heart of hearts, he really is a churchman. And so he's thinking really critically about what it looks like for us to explain the doctrine of the Trinity in our personal context. So Deep Things of God kind of came out of that desire in him, and he's writing particularly to people that came out of a tradition like me. We might call it the revivalist tradition. Um, So he's working with hymns that I like grew up singing in my little Southern Baptist church, the ways that we were talking about the gospel and explaining to us how what we already believe is essentially Trinitarian in ways that um, other authors don't always. Sometimes people talk about the Trinity in a way that it needs to be this high church experience that you do high church liturgy in order to be really Trinitarian. And he's really showing how evangelicals historically and in our very heart are a Trinitarian people. And I couldn't recommend it more highly for any evangelical thinking about the Trinity. Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed our episode, give us a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Share it with a friend, and we look forward to seeing you next week.